Uh, Christians in every age have um, uh, pondered what it takes to revive God's church. Some have insisted it's possible to create a revival using certain techniques. Others have have insisted, no, it lies solely in the hand of God. We can do nothing. Still others have suggested, well, there's there's a dynamic between those two and prayer is at the heart of it. They've advocated uh, um, great prayer meetings, whole nights of prayer. The uh, modern 24-7 prayer movement is an example of that. Some have said, actually, just there are just sociological and political reasons why churches wax and wane. The forces of, uh, of uh, large um, uh, sociological, anthropological um, movements. Others insist... Actually, it's a complete mystery why God sometimes steps in and revives his church and why at other times he seems to withdraw and his church fades away. And for those of us here who are Christians at least, that has to be an important question. That has to be something we're interested in. We live actually in a very interesting moment in British history. If you go back to the beginning of my life or perhaps just a little bit before, you would find in Britain that Christianity and the Bible held a clear privileged position in society. In Parliament, for instance, there would have been plenty of people who argued straight from Scripture um, for different laws, and by and large, those arguments tended to win. But then uh, about the time that my generation was being born, that started to shift quite significantly. No longer did Christian arguments hold sway. The 1967 Abortion Act, for instance, was um, uh, an iconic example of that. But actually, in the 60s, Christianity was still respected you know, doctors, for instance, in the, in the 67 Abortion Acts who opposed abortion for conscientious reasons were allowed, were exempted from the requirement to be involved in terminations. And uh, that continued uh, roughly until my generation came to power. My, my generation is a, is a generation in which Even residual respect for Christianity is rapidly becoming a minority view. It's been very interesting to watch not only um, laws being being enacted which which would be explicitly against what the Bible says, but to notice that quite explicitly that there is no liberty given for conscientious objection again and again. The marriage bill legalizing marriage for same-sex couples has um, come before Parliament this week. We await to see what will happen. And alongside that move in in British society, um, also the statistics show an overall decline of church attendance in this country. Seems pretty clear where we're heading. Except that something else is going on too. Overall, for instance, church numbers are declining, um, but that's uh, overwhelmingly because of a wholesale collapse of liberal Christianity. 
so that the much more nominal uh, church attendance has disappeared. But underneath that, there is a, uh, is a, uh, a pretty strong and indeed growing evangelical movement of Christians serious about the Bible, serious about living their lives for God, serious about reaching the nation and indeed our world for Christ. Almost every evangelical church that I know is growing. Um, and there are new churches being planted all the time up and down the country. Oxford, for instance, probably over the last generation, um, has doubled the numbers of worshippers in evangelical churches. And it's not entirely um, different from the rest of the country. It's not surprising then that Maudlin Road has been growing, that we are planting Cowley Church Community and Trinity Church in, in, uh, uh, in the centre. How and why does that kind of growth happen? Are there human causes or is it just the mysterious work of God? How does a church thrive in a society which is increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity? How do individual Christians thrive in a world in which most people think that we are at best weird or quaint and at worst malevolent monsters hiding behind smiling faces? All of those questions we are going to uh, uh, try to answer, in part at least, as we, try, as we study the book of Ezra. Ezra gives his name to uh, this book that we're, we're starting studying this, uh, this week, but he's not going to appear, actually, until uh, chapter 7. It's much more about the people of God as a whole, and it describes a period late in Old Testament history. The, the uh, Old Testament is not put together entirely uh, chronologically, though, so despite the fact that it's roughly in the middle of the Old Testament part of the Bible, it's right at the end of Old Testament history. 500 years before, Israel had been a great nation under King David with a, with a, with a temple and, and, um, uh, uh, and great power and influence. But the nation had sunk into deep sin and decline in consequence and God had finally allowed um, Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed and the people to be um, uh, to go into exile. The time um, uh, we're reading about is about a lifetime after that. At that point, people began to trickle back, actually in 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 a number of waves from being in exile back to the temple, back to the city, and start to rebuild them both but always in the context of real uh, uh, opposition. This was a very, very important um, uh, part of Israel's history, but not because they were able to rebuild the former glorious nation, much as they longed to do so. No, its importance lay in the fact that they learned to be a people of faith in a hostile world. The the political, military, but ultimately moribund uh, kingdom of Israel was starting to give way to the spiritual, defenseless, 
dynamic kingdom of God. Old Israel was being morphed and made ready into a new people of God, which would ultimately be the church. So Ezra's got a great deal to teach us in these coming um, uh, weeks, and I'm praying that it will focus and shape our growth as a multiplying church. And it has a great deal to teach us as individuals as well, because it teaches us It teaches us how God rules over his people and how God enables individuals to thrive and be blessed. The thing we're going to see then this morning as we just look at these first couple of chapters of Ezra in uh, in relatively um, uh, overview, the thing we're going to, to see this morning as we begin our journey is very simple and yet very important. Ezra's first answer to that question, what, what, what enables God's people to thrive in a hostile world is simply God. God is in control of it. God is sovereign as he has he allowed his people to decline and move uh, 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 and move into exile, and he is sovereign as he brings them back and enables them to flourish and to grow and multiply. God rules, says Ezra one and two. That's what we uh, need to see. God is sovereignly ruling in His providence. The primary agent in the very first verse of the book, is the Lord. Did you notice that? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his reign and also put it in writing. There are a number of things that we need to grasp just from this first verse to show how extensive is God's rule over his world. God rules, says uh, Ezra 1.1, over history. Notice, did you see? God is fulfilling the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. There are several places in the prophecy of Jeremiah which had... had, um, um, uh, been prophesied a, a lifetime ago, in which um, uh, though Jeremiah says they must go into exile because of their sin as a nation, he also says that they will return to the land after 70 years. For instance, just listen to this from, from um, Isaiah chapter 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where you have been banished, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God is keeping his promises. Indeed, uh, Jeremiah makes it makes it plain 
that uh, in his prophecy, that God's commitment to bring them back from exile is because he's committed to promises he made even earlier, 1,500 years before that, to Abraham, that they would dwell in the land, that they would enjoy the presence of God and so on. God is ruling over the, over the vast stretches of history, making promises and keeping them. And so this return to the promised land is, 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 a, is a token of the fact that God rules over history. And um, he rules, says Ezra 1.1, over nations. The mention of King Cyrus of Persia is really significant here. Persia was at that moment the main superpower. And God rules over its king. Indeed, the, um, the, the careful mention of his name is perhaps significant because again, a lifetime ago, he had been named by Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah said, this is what the sovereign Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. This was before Cyrus was born. Yet in Isaiah 45, he is named, named again in verse 13 of 45. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Any biblically literate uh, Israelite you see, who had read that, would have pricked up his ears when he read in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and so on. Here's the man whom Isaiah named before, and here is God ruling over him. Cyrus thinks it's his decision. It is not his decision, ultimately. God rules over even the most powerful kings, the most powerful nations. What what drives history? What, What moves history forward in the way that it does move forward? The ancients used to think it doesn't really move forward. It's either static or it's cyclic. In the in the modern era, various ideas focused around uh, 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 around the idea of progress. Capitalism grew and thrived from the popular view that progress is inevitable. Marxism critiqued capitalism, but replaced it with another vision of inevitable progress, this time the inevitable liberation of the, uh, of the proletariat. Today there's, there's, frankly, confusion. Some say history is chaotic. Some, some say it's nothing more than the biography of great men, as Thomas Carlyle put it in the 19th century. Others say... So say history is defined by a, by a clash of rising and falling civilizations, as uh, Samuel Huntington uh, 
proclaimed in the 1990s. I mean, two decades after he wrote his book, after 9-11 and Iraq and Afghanistan and, and now Mali, it looks like, a, like history is driven simply by the sort of clash of civilizations. Others say history now is still moving in inevitable progress. Francis Fukuyama wrote a book uh, entitled The End of History and the Last Man, in which he said that, that we are moving inevitably towards the sovereignty of liberal democracy and capitalism. And the Bible says perhaps all of those forces are at work, but over them lies a unifying power and purpose. It is the purpose of God. The sovereign hand of God. There is a grander narrative to history than any of those things. God is in control of history. He drives it forward as he makes promises and he keeps them. God is in control of those clashing nations. He raises them up. He puts them down. He, he stands behind every um, individual from, from Abraham Lincoln to Osama bin Laden, just to capture two stars of films that have come out this week. And he rules over all of them. And says Ezra 1.1, he rules over human hearts. He rules over Cyrus's heart. The Lord... Verse 1, moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. Now, Cyrus is not a believer. His um, sympathetic statement in verse 2, the Lord, the God of heaven has appointed me and so on, is not true faith. It is at, at best superstition and probably it's much more likely to be political expediency. We know from elsewhere that he, he uh, consciously revived the local worship of all kinds of deities uh, around his, his, his kingdom. Perhaps because he believed that the cumulative happiness of the gods would, uh, would keep him in power. Um, perhaps because uh, he agreed with Karl Marx that religion is the opium, opiate of the people and would keep them happy. We do not know, but he was not a worshipper, a unique worshipper of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But God has his heart. God still ordains through the decisions of Cyrus's heart what he should achieve. God has the heart of David Cameron, whether he is a, um, I can't remember how he described himself, as a, a, um, a cautious believer in God or whatever he said. Whether that means he has real faith or not, God has the heart of Nick Clegg. God has the heart of your boss when you go into work in the morning, on Monday morning. God has the heart of your teacher. God has the heart of every human being in his hand. 
Will the law on marriage change in this country? I'd rather it didn't because I think it is bad for society as we move further away from a clear biblical ideal of how people are to live together. But it won't be the Houses of Parliament which finally decides, nor even the people. It will be God. God decided when Israel went into exile and God decided when they returned. God decides how far he will let a nation fall away from his ideals and God decides when he brings that nation back. He can do it by moving even pagan hearts. God has the hearts of visceral opponents of Christianity, like uh, uh, like every preacher's favourite friend, uh, Richard Dawkins, ultimately in his hand. Isaiah chapter 10, describing how God is going to use the monstrously cruel Assyrians to fulfil his purpose in sending Israel into uh, exile. Um, uh, Isaiah describes how they think they are in control. Isaiah 10 verse 13. He says, by the strength of my hand I have done this, by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasures, like a mighty one I subdued their king, and God's Reply is contemptuous, verse 15. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it, or the saw boast against the one who uses it, as if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who is not wood? God is in control. He has his purposes in allowing his opponents their freedom, but it is not them ultimately who has ultimate liberty. They are the axe, they are the saw, they are the rods, they are the lifeless club. God can and does turn all kinds of people, turn their hearts for his purposes whether that be to refine his church or whether that be to, 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 to bless his church in a more immediate way. God, God has the hearts of the people of East Oxford in his hands as they have become increasingly sympathetic to uh, Magdalen Road. As, uh, and that's partly due to the long-term hard labor and witness of people here who have demonstrated to East Oxford that Christianity is a healthy and wholesome way to live. And I, I see, I've, I've seen the rise of people's respect for this church over, over the 15 years that I've been here. But it is also because their hearts are in God's hands. But of course, God supremely rules over the hearts of his people in particular. Verse 5 makes that plain. The family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
he moved the hearts of his people as well. He moved their hearts to, to leave the comfort of that great civilization, exiled though they were. It was a pretty comfortable life, and to come and live in the rubble of a destroyed city, to leave the security of the superpower, to live in a city without walls. Every true work of God in his church is not through the dynamism of some uh, uh, great leader. Um, it, it, it is through the work of God in human hearts. That's what God is doing here in Ezra 1 and here in Magdalen Road Church. You know, there are people here who have recently come to faith and it was God who moved your heart. I, again and again, when I see people come to faith, I feel like an observer. There are people here who are contemplating Christian faith. And in the last analysis, we have to accept that it will only be as God moves your heart that you will be enabled to do that. And all of us here should be considering what God wants us to do with our lives. We have the enormous privilege of cooperating with God in his sovereign rule in our hearts. Now, specifically, Maldon Road is in, in the process, we've already said it this morning, of, of multiply, uh, multiplying and developing along, along three distinct trajectories, which we pray will soon be three different churches. And they are all great visions. We have um, here in Magdalen Road the possibility of acquiring a new building which could become long-term hub for mission and ministry. And we've been praying for that for some time. Come along to the, um, uh, to the church meeting on February the 5th to, to hear more about this and, and, um, and to pray and to discuss. Chat Cowley Church Community is a great vision we've already heard about as well for a household-sized missional small groups reaching out into the Cowley area. And that has got started. Speak to Tim Guest or Andy Moore if you want to know more. Trinity Church then is, is, is just starting to take, take, take shape which will be a church for the heart of the, uh, of the city of Oxford. Speak to me or to Matt Round about that. All of those are great uh, initiatives. And, and I hope everyone is praying about how God would have them devote their energies over the next uh, um, months and years, however long you're, you're around. And I pray that it will not, that your decision will not be on the basis of simple, narrow self-interest or preference or personal loyalties or persuasive arguments, but in the sense that God has called you. If you haven't prayed about that, then do. None of those visions needs people who are just along for the ride. Every single one of them needs to be filled and populated with people who have sought God and whose heart God has inclined in one direction or another. Now, God's people, God's church thrives 
as God moves in human hearts. And they know they are not serving anything less than the call of the living God on their lives. God, God moved the hearts of these Israelites so that, so that they had faith, the kind of faith that was committed to building the house of the Lord, which for us is his church. God, God moved them to be generous in that great work. Did you see at the end of chapter 2, when they arrived, verse 68, at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the family gave free will offerings. Notice that, not no obligation, free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for his work an enormous amount. You have been incredibly generous. That graph showed it. I hope they are all free will offerings. And I trust they are. And as the Lord moves uh, you to follow him, he will make you generous. That is my absolute confidence as a pastor who now has for 20 years lived on the generosity of God's people. I have never been in need because God moves his people to generosity. And God moves his people to simple obedience. As he tells us today through Jesus, go to all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. That is his call. And he will make your specific part of that clear as you seek him. God rules. And God rules for one ultimate purpose. Ezra... um, Makes his pers- makes that point quite clearly when you see it, but um, initially in quite subtle ways to our ears. Not so much to a Hebrew ear. Ezra, throughout these chapters, uses the language of the Exodus as he describes what's happening. The exodus had happened um, 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 more than a thousand years earlier. God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt to liberty and and freedom in the promised land. And uh, Ezra echoes that. In fact, he particularly uses language of the prophet Isaiah who promised there would be another exodus, a second exodus, a new exodus that God would do in the future. So when uh, Cyrus, for instance, in verse 4, speaks about liberating the survivors, um, uh, it is actually the word remnant. And Isaiah had promised a remnant will return on this second exodus. Or verse 6 is also very interesting. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts, 
in addition to all the free will offerings. When God, um, you see, liberated Israel the first time from Egypt, we learn that ordinary Egyptians were prompted to give them gifts of gold and other things. So Ezra's careful recording that this happened in Babylon as they set out to return to the promised land is clearly echoing that earlier story. And when in verse 7 we learn that Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, we're almost certainly supposed to hear an echo of a promise in Isaiah 52 that the second exodus will include the carrying back of the articles of the Lord's house. And uh, uh, one last incident, when in verse 11, we read that they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Do you see that right at the end of the uh, chapter there? He's using quite unusual phraseology. It's phraseology which was used almost exclusively in the Old Testament for the Israelites coming up out of Egypt and into the promised land. There's no, there's no doubt of Ezra's intention. He's saying the promised new exodus is happening. But we need to remember the first exodus, the first liberation from Egypt, happened for a specific reason. So the reason we've already mentioned, that God had made promises to Abraham And he is keeping that promise by liberating his people from Egypt because he had promised them land, so he takes them into the land. He had promised to make them innumerable as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore, so he starts to multiply them. He had promised that they would enjoy the presence of God, so he takes them into the land and enables them to build a city and indeed a temple uh, where God ultimately dwells. And he had promised that all nations would be blessed through Israel. So he establishes them as a nation which is designed to bless the wider world. And the tragedy of the first exodus is it was not successful. They failed. That's why they'd gone into exile. That's why they found themselves not in the, in the promised land, but in Babylon. But God had not forgotten his promises. And so this second exodus is a second um, uh, um, uh, action of God to fulfill the promises to Abraham. And we find when we read through the latter uh, history of Israel in the Old Testament that that too, in fact, failed in the fullness of what God intended. Indeed, When Jesus came to the earth, he found a people living in the promised land as exiles. And we're told that actually Jesus finally achieved the liberation for God's people that Israel never achieved. Jesus now brought his people not into some one local land, but gave them the earth 
The meek will inherit the earth, he says. Jesus now enabled them to enjoy the presence of God, not by going up to a temple, but as they gather together in God's name and praise and pray and read his word. Jesus enabled the church finally to become an innumerable number of people, just as they are today. No one can number the number of Christians on this earth. Jesus enabled God's people to become a, um, a, a people of every tribe and nation throughout the world. And so it is today. There are, there are Christians in everywhere from America to North Korea. We are the fulfillment of this story that sputtered and struggled and never really came to its full life until Jesus came. God rules for one purpose. To fulfill promises made thousands of years ago. That his people would have, would inherit the earth. That his people would be without number. That his people would enjoy his presence that his people would be from every nation. That is what he's doing here. That is what, he, is what he will continue to do on this earth for the whole of the rest of that history that he rules over. That is what he will bring to final completion that we were looking at in the three previous weeks with the new heaven and the new earth and the properly restored city and a restored garden of Eden and living in the presence of God. There's an extraordinary little verse, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. The Apostle Paul says, God placed all things under his feet. That's Jesus' feet. God placed all things under Jesus' feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church. What do God's people need to thrive and grow and multiply? We need the God who rules over all things. What do I need to thrive and grow and be fruitful? I need the God who rules over human hearts. And I need to let him rule not as I stand in hostility to him, but as I bow before him and say, God, use me for your one purpose in this world. What do I need to do next? One thing I need to do is bow before him and pray to the ruler of the universe. And say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, use me. Lord, revive me.